Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for seeing all these faces out here. Uh, I know a time change must have, like Elder Stackhouse said, must have messed with, with some people's bodies and their physical clocks and all that. Uh, but Lord, I thank you for all of your children who came out today and are filling these pews. Uh, they're, they're hungry. They're hungry for you. They're hungry for your word. I pray that uh, you would all work in our minds and our hearts through your word this morning. Uh, that your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in August of last year, a woman named Francesca Teal from Massachusetts had a ring that had belonged to her great-grandmother on her hand while she and her husband tossed a football around in the ocean on a beach in New Hampshire. The worst case scenario for that ring happens. You already know what's going to happen here. <laughs> and that priceless heirloom had slipped off her finger at some point while they were in the water. Teal and her husband spent hours looking for the ring, but with no result. Desperate, Teal took to Facebook and implored anyone who went to that beach with a metal detector to be on the lookout for it. Strangers with handheld metal detectors roamed the sand, but still nobody could find it. A man named Lou Asai saw Teal's post, owned a deep sea metal detector, and ended up locating the ring at the bottom of the ocean off the coast of New Hampshire. But detecting it from the boat, knowing it's there, and actually possessing it in your hand are two completely different stories. Asai put on a wetsuit and a headlamp and went scouring the ocean floor for two entire days and still couldn't find it. Asai admitted to the Boston Globe, which first covered the story, that he didn't take failure too well and gave it one last shot to find it. Finally, in that last ditch effort, Asai found the ring buried under the sand of the ocean floor. He took a picture of it and replied to Teal's post with the comment, Please tell me this is the ring so I can finally get off the beach. <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> it was, a time was arranged for its return, and the priceless family heirloom was returned to its owner. In this true story, this woman had something of unspeakable worth. In fact, it was priceless. And yet, while she could have never, while she would have never chosen to part with it in a million years, it slipped right off her hand. In God's sovereignty, he allowed for this complete stranger to finally find it and return it. But Jesus holds something indescribably even more priceless. Us. In his hands. And we'll see what the truth that we can't slip out of those hands and no force and no being can ever snatch us out of them means for us. We've been talking about this very famous parable of Jesus's, that of the good shepherd over the past few weeks. We've seen that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he's the only gate or the only way into become a, becoming a part of the flock, and that gate being the only source of protection for those sheep. We've seen that Satan is the thief whose only goal is to kill, steal, and destroy humanity and their souls. 
And we've seen that the Pharisees, who Jesus is directing this parable at, are the strangers, hired hands, who don't actually care about the sheep they're supposed to be leading and protecting, and the thieves and robbers who have been believing and acting in the same lies that Satan has, has been promoting. We saw last week that Jesus, as the good shepherd, has the authority to lay down his life for the sheep, which is the only way for the sheep to be saved from their sin and added to the good shepherd's flock. What this tells us is that Jesus is the only being, both 100% God and 100% human, but in his humanity, to be sinless in order to even have the possibility of willingly laying down his life on his own terms. Just as important, God the Father gave God the Son the authority to not only lay his life down for his own purpose, to pay for our sin death debt, but also the authority to raise it back up again. Both of these historical events that we'll be focusing on more and more as we get closer to Good Friday and Easter and Resurrection Sunday give overwhelming proof of Jesus' deity. Now this week, we jump back into this account, and we start with the Pharisees and the rest of the surrounding crowd's reaction to all of this. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 10. We're going to be picking up in verses 19 through 21. If you didn't, that, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But this is what we read. A division occurred, again, among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. And, and more than that, a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. Can he? And we can see their, their knee-jerk reaction to, to, to all of what Jesus has just said. Instead of giving any credence to anything Jesus has just said, they just automatically lump him into the demonic realm. Their immediate response is that Jesus is just raving mad because they don't understand what he's saying, nor do they want to understand what he's saying. This isn't the first time we see these people having the same exact division. Back on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in John 8:48, the Pharisees already accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. And after Jesus healed a man born blind on a Sabbath day, the Pharisees were divided on whether or not Jesus was a sinner. The irony of all of this was that the Pharisees thought they were the most righteous and therefore the most spiritually open-eyed people that walked the face of the earth at that time. And yet not only did they uh, have, the, have the basis for salvation and entrance into heaven completely wrong, but now they've completely, they're, they're completely thinking illogically about Jesus. That's why the crowd is divided. Anyone who disagreed with the Pharisees was at best a sinner and at worst demon-possessed. They're nice guys, huh? But none of that made any sense when it came to Jesus. He was an anomaly. As Jesus already pointed out to them, nothing he did was for his own glory. And as some were thinking a little bit more logically than others, pointed out that in no other time in history has a demon restored someone's sight or even said anything that sounded reasonable. 
In fact, every other, in, in every other instance, the demon who possessed a person made that person try to hurt themselves, either by cutting themselves or living out in a cemetery, naked and exposed to the elements, throwing them into the fire, making them have violent, writhing episodes, and tormenting them mentally and spiritually. Every other in instance, a demon brought harm to the one they possessed. Not once do they ever bring life or health. And that simply goes hand in hand with what Jesus point blank declared about Satan. That his only goals were and are death, stealing, and destruction. But all Jesus' goal is, is restoring life in every way. First and foremost spiritually, but that of also bringing physical, mental, emotional, and psychological healing. That same pharisaical irony extends to today. Paul wrote in First to, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God purposely made his plan of salvation look like illogical nonsense to those who in reality are the ones who are spiritually blind. Only to those who God has opened their spiritual eyes does his plan and his word make perfect sense. And while I'm no authority, it does make perfect sense. If God has opened your spiritual eyes to repent of your sin and accept Jesus as your Savior and King, everything in God's Word makes perfect and absolute sense. And ironically, those spiritually blind in the world, like the Pharisees, think they're the righteous and smart ones, and Bible-believing Christians are out of touch, antiquated, bigoted, and downright stupid. But for instance... What the scientific world now is having to come to grips with is that all the evidence they're uncovering in the physical world is actually proving what God revealed in his word thousands of years ago. What they're uncovering now is that the geological record, those layers upon layers of rock and the fossils located in them, especially in what they can observe in the Grand Canyon, at the tops of mountains and all over the world, gives the evidence of the quick laying down of sediment turning into rock, which fits the, histor the, the biblical account of a worldwide flood about 4,000 to 6,000 years ago, rather than millions of years of that forming. They're finding, like I referenced a month or two ago, that the evidence they're finding from their latest space telescope is that incredibly far away galaxies that are supposed to give evidence that they're older by millions of years are actually giving evidence that they're the same exact age as the ones closer to Earth. And they're finding that the observable science of DNA sequencing and animal adaptation actually fits the modern day animals having an ancestor of that same type of animal that all originated at the same time and not evolving over millions of years from one single-celled organism. In fact, there is so much overwhelming scientific evidence now that proves what God's Word has already revealed thousands of years ago that you have to willingly blind yourself to it or try to force it to fit some illogical atheistic evolutionary paradigm. 
Not only that, but look at the double standard when it comes to morality. God's word teaches that life begins at conception and that God is the only one to have the authority over when that life ends. And once again, science proves that life begins at conception. Look at all the mental and philosophical and subjectively moral gymnastics one has to go through to justify the killing of the most defenseless and vulnerable people that exist in society. Why are we scouring the universe looking for the least and most basic combinations of amino acids and signs of life when an established heartbeat and the basic form systems of the human body don't count? It seems like provisions are made for the protection of the lives of everyone in society except for the life inside of a womb. Everybody else's life is protected except for the life inside a womb. And that's just one example of the blatant double standards of morality redefined outside of what God has already clearly commanded in his word thousands of years ago. All we need to do is to go to what God already said about any moral issue. It never contradicts itself and we have our answer. It's as simple as that. It doesn't matter how many people it offends. We already have our answer. It's really as simple and logical as that. And it all makes perfect sense. Furthermore, what the world portrays as polar opposites, that you can't be Bible-believing and moral truth and loving at the same time, the Bible reveals as the exact same goal for the follower of Jesus, that of standing for and growing in God's biblical truth and love. Ephesians 4 tells us, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up. <laughs> that seems like a foreign concept today, isn't it? We're our, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ. We now come to the next time marker in this gospel, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, which the Jewish people still celebrate to this day. We can see its worth in that Jesus uses its context as a springboard for teaching another profoundly impactful truth about himself and God the Father, verses 22 through 24. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication, or Hanukkah, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> if it were me, because I'm only human, I would probably not be able to contain myself and just burst out laughing in all of their faces. Tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. As Jesus will respond with at this point in his ministry, he's been telling them for years that he's the Messiah. They just don't want to listen to him. And that's how Jesus reasonably and gently responds with again. Verse 25, Jesus answers them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. It's not that Jesus hasn't been plain and hasn't told them. It's that they simply haven't wanted to believe him. 
And no amount of Jesus repeating himself over and over until he has no breath anymore is going to change that. Why? Because, as we've been talking about all this time, they remain spiritually blind. And it still doesn't make sense to them in their blindness. Jesus references that in a shocking turn of events to anyone listening and paying attention. Verse 25. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now that's a shocking turn of events to Jesus' Jewish listeners here. They prove they're not Jesus' sheep because they're refusing to listen to him in any way. Verses 20, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It's as simple as that. Obviously, we're not God, and God is the only one who truly knows someone, and if they've given their soul to him yet in repentance and making Jesus Savior and King. But all throughout Scripture and here, there are indications and signs pointing to whether someone has had their spiritual eyes opened by God and has been saved from their sin. Is the person listening to Jesus' voice and not only listening to it, but following it? First and foremost, has the person, has the person listening to the call of the Good Shepherd to repent and put their faith in him, laying down his life for them for their eternity. Have they listened to him yet in doing that? If they truly have, then it should be visible that the Holy Spirit within them is changing them and leading them to listen to and follow Jesus' voice in his word. Remember the Apostle John wrote at the beginning of this gospel that Jesus is the embodiment of of the word of God. It was through him that when God said, let there be, those things came into existence. Jesus is the embodiment of the Proverbs person of God's wisdom. And Jesus is the embodiment of God's written law. When the rest of the prophets throughout the Old Testament said, thus says the Lord, it was through Jesus that those prophecies were given, which makes those Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah even more powerful because the coming Messiah is the one who gave those prophecies. Both testaments of Scripture are said by Scripture to be written through the Holy Spirit's leading by both uh, leading of people to write down God's words. And Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is given by both God the Father and God the Son. So, again, truly, when John wrote that Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God, he meant the entire Word of God including all the moral commands from the moment of creation, not the ones we like or fit the cultural, uh, current cultural or societal paradigm. Are we striving to follow the entirety of God's word in accurate and careful understanding of it, thereby following Jesus' voice? Or are we picking and choosing if and when we want to listen to Jesus' voice? found in the entirety of God's word? Or are we just plain ignoring Jesus' voice found in the entirety of God's word and don't even care what he's saying to us? To the one who does listen to the voice of the good shepherd calling out to them, 
and answers that call to repent of their sin, knowing he willingly laid down his life as God for their sin and surrendering themselves to his leadership as king, showing that faith by continually listening to Jesus' voice throughout the entirety of God's word and following it, this is what God gifts to us in verse 28. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a profound promise. Amen? What an earth-shattering promise. Jesus has already spoken about giving eternal life to those who put their faith in him as the prophesied messianic deliverer multiple times in just this one gospel account. He has also already stated that they will not experience the second death or, or the ultimate death or hell. He's already said, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus puts it the exact same way elsewhere when he said, So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bear tree, bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. This is why I said that faith in Jesus is indicated by if one is striving to listen to and follow his voice in the whole of God's word or not. That's how crucial it is. And here's that profound, earth-shattering truth. If you have truly repented of your sin, surrendered yourself to Jesus as Savior and King, answering the call of the Good Shepherd, no one can or will snatch you out of the good shepherd's hand. Neither Satan nor the whole demonic realm can snatch you out of his hand. No other human being can snatch you out of his hand. And guess what? You cannot snatch yourself out of Jesus' hand. The Apostle Paul reiterates this when he wrote, In him you also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of the promise, who is a first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of whom is you being able to look back on your life and see areas where he's transformed you to bring you more in line with the image of Jesus, the embodiment of God's word, is the seal of your promised eternal life. Not only is this a reference to the image of a ruler writing a letter and sealing it with wax and pressing the authority of his ring into it, protecting that letter until its intended destination, but the Holy Spirit is the first installment of eternal riches and inheritance we will be given once we reach our intended eternal destination. 
There are two unbiblical and wrong theologies floating around out there that fly in the face of this biblical truth. The first is that you can make yourself lose your salvation by disobeying God enough and walking away from him. That's the first unbiblical and wrong theology. But God's word is clear and simple. If you had truly repented and given your heart to Jesus, showing that faith over the years by listening to and following his voice and his word, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and you will never lose that salvation. Sometimes God takes us on a long roundabout journey where we do walk away from him and want nothing to do with him, but he protects us until he brings us back to himself. But what does this also tell us? That if someone never ends up coming back to God before they take their last breath, they never actually gave their heart and repentance to him, and they face the same fate as the one who blatantly rejected and mocked Jesus their whole lives. But to the one who has truly repented and surrendered to Jesus and shows that by love for, listening to, and following his voice and his word, we have the peace and assurance that even when we mess up, because we're still going to fall to sin until we die, or Jesus comes back for us, the Holy Spirit transforming us is the proof that our heavenly home is sealed, never to be broken. That brings us to the second unbiblical and wrong theology. There's a theology out there that says that if one commits suicide, they've automatically lost their salvation and entrance into heaven. To that, I dare you to scour the scriptures and find anything anywhere in the scriptures that says that. In fact, everything in scripture says the complete opposite. The basis is repentance and faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. That faith is shown by the Holy Spirit's transformation and leading us to follow Jesus' voice and his word. And that Holy Spirit is our seal for our eternal destination. We have no clue the emotional and mental pain someone is in that leads that person to take their own lives. We have no clue the emotional and mental pain someone is in that leads to drug use leading to death by overdose. But here is where we come back to what the Bible says about life and that, light, and that God is the only one who has the authority to determine when a life ends. We don't have that right. That right only belongs to God, no matter where you are in life and no matter how much pain you're in. At the same time, nowhere in God's word does it say we automatically lose our salvation if that happens. In fact, we've seen it says the complete opposite. So it doesn't give us motivation to follow through with suicide or drug use to overdose. And if you are struggling with that, you have a whole support system called the body of Christ right here who can come alongside of you in your pain. Just reach out to us. We're here for you. And what it does is it gives us peace that if we have a loved one, 
who had repented and put their faith in Jesus, but who succumbed to that kind of death in a season of weakness or darkness. The same promise of eternal sealing was theirs too. And if you needed any further confirmation of you remaining in Jesus' hands, he backs that up with the truth that you can't even be snatched out of God the Father's hands. Verses 29 through 30. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Rather than being an unnecessary addendum to what Jesus just said, This is further confirmation of what he's already said about the sovereignty of God and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in connection with that sovereignty. It further confirms that God the Father is the one with the plan and has chosen in his own reasoning and for his own purposes who he will pour his grace out on and call out to with that grace to save, as the book of Romans is clear about. And Jesus has already reiterated that in the Gospel of John. Those souls are already kept safe in God the Father's hands according to his plan. Then according to that plan, Jesus saves those souls through his death, resurrection, and calling out to as the good shepherd by way of his Holy Spirit, who then respond by God's grace. This overall plan and carrying out of this plan for the salvation of individual souls and the preservation of these souls for heaven is what Jesus points out in verse 30. As noted by one biblical scholar, the way that the word one is written here in the Greek confirms the fact that Jesus is not claiming that he and the Father are one and the same person, but that their purpose and plan for souls is perfectly one, is perfectly united. That's enough of an outright claim to deity to Jesus' Jewish listeners for them to want to kill him with stones and cold blood right then and there as we read in the very next verse. But we'll take a deeper look at that next week. So in the entire scheme of God and his plan for the world, and within the relationship between the three members of the Trinity, we truly do have the 100% full and complete assurance that nothing and no one can or will snatch us out of the safety and protection of the hands of God. In our weakest times, in our darkest times, in our strongest times of depression or doubt, in the worst of the heat of our spiritual battles against the realms of evil, sin, addiction, and fear, we're being kept safe. God is not letting us go. God is not abandoning us. God is not saying, I've had enough of you, good riddance. Rather, God wants us to know this, and this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is what God wants you to know. And we know that God causes all things 
to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will, that's a promise, will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved, it's already there, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And lastly, our passage this morning again. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a powerful declaration in your word that if we have truly come to you in repentance, made you the Savior of our sin, made you the King over the rest of our lives, and we have that Holy Spirit and we can look back and we can see him changing us and transforming us, we see that fruit of his transformation, we know that our eternity is sealed because we know we have that Holy Spirit. And Lord, in our darkest of times, in our most heartbreaking of times, in our most confusing times, and in the height of the battle we have against the forces of evil and against sin and addiction, and even when we do mess up, we know that no one can or will or can ever think about snatching us out of your hand. We thank you that our, our, we are held safe in your hands now and our eternity is sealed. Let us go forward with the hope of that faith. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.